The Hot 4 podcast this week is proudly sponsored by SSV Limited. From tanks to full brew houses, SSV Limited has got you covered. SSV Limited have established themselves as the go-to partner to help you grow your brewery. High quality tanks, parts, brewing kits, coupled with the knowledge and experience to ensure your project runs smoothly from beginning to completion, whether it's equipment supply, full turnkey or anything in between. Their part shop stocks well over a thousand essential brewing parts to keep your brewery up and running and many are available on next day delivery. Visit their website at ssvlimited.co.uk and don't forget to visit their stand at Seba BRX in Liverpool this March. You can find them on stand number one, so make sure you swing by, say hello and admire their shiny brew houses. I'm Nick Law and you're listening to the Hop Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello, beer buddies, and welcome to another sesh on the Hot 4 podcast. A couple of weeks ago, me and my family decided to take a detour on our way home from a short midweek break in the Yorkshire Dales. Our destination, my wife's suggestion actually, was to do the brewery tour at the Black Sheep Brewery in Massam. The brewery wasn't quite as big as I thought it was going to be. Uh, perhaps I've been spoiled by the size of Timothy Taylor's when I visited the Keithley Brewery just a few months before the pandemic took hold. But nonetheless, it was brilliant. We saw the Orchard Squares, the te- oh, 10 barrel, <laughs> the 100 barrel copper. And of course, like all good breweries do, we had some samples in the tap room thereafter. So when we went to spend our tokens as the amber colored black sheet bitter poured from the beer engine into the glass, a thick creamy head of foam sat on top of the beer like frosting on a good cake. And throughout my pint, it never dissipated and it left beautiful lacing down the glass until every drop was happily consumed. Unfortunately, though, I was driving, so was rather sadly unable to have any more. So, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. I repeated the experience again, only this time down the local pub, the Raven Inn, a rather nice establishment owned by Loxley Brewery. Having taken my daughter for an hour of games, bar snacks and drinks, she being on the lemonade, of course, got to get them into the pub while they're young, though, that's my philosophy, I nursed a rather delicious pint of Loxley Brewery's Best Bitter Halliday. This fruity, estuary, hoppy best also sported a rather thick, creamy head with similar lacing as the glass got emptier and emptier and emptier. There is something unendingly satisfying about a good head on a pint of beer. I mean, that's the way beer's meant to look, isn't it? If that wasn't the case, they wouldn't illustrate things like Asterix the Gaul with Obelix consuming from a wooden tanker, foam cartoonishly spilling out over the top, would they? And yet so many beers, whether it dispensed from a beer engine, a keg tap, a bottle or a can, offer so much on first pour, but deliver so little a minute or so after settling with barely even a white or tan film covering the top of the beer, let alone a proper head. And it's times like this where I drive my good friend, Patrick Spencer, mad. Every time we venture to some pub or other and my beer is lacking in foam, I'll give it a good swill and swirl. 
At first he'd say, what are you doing? But now he's become so acquainted with this repetitive action that he simply says, not that again. Soon, right, he won't even notice it. It'll be so embedded into his psyche that maybe he'll even start doing it himself. Then there's obviously the opposite problem, isn't there? Too much foam. If a beer contains too much carbonation, then foaming and fobbing is a nightmare. It's one thing to have no head on your beer, but to have nothing but a head of foam, only to lose most of your beer to it. And even then, what's left in the glass tends to have lost loads of carbonation due to excessive breakout. That, my friends, that is a greater evil. Nick, do you not think with everything that's going on in the world and the potential of nuclear war and World War Three breaking out, that's a little bit of hyperbole? Yes! Yes, that is hyperbole. Or hyperbole, as uh, my kids call it. Who would have thought there would be so much to say about foam? Well, if you're literally foaming at the mouth, see what I did there, to hear more about carbonation and foam, then, well, today is your lucky day. This week, I'm extremely excited to have Professor Charlie Bamforth, aka the Pope of Foam, grace us with his presence on the Hot 4 podcast. If you're unfamiliar with the work of Charlie Bamforth, then you should check out some of his books, such as Standards of Brewing, Brewing Materials and Processes, and of course, the aptly named Foam. And also, he appears quite regularly on the Beer Smith podcast with Brad Smith, which is just a great podcast full of knowledge with some really great people on there. And that's how I first became aware of Charlie Bamforth. Make sure you go check that podcast out. Charlie is a former president of the Institute of Brewing and Distilling and was also an Isa Bush Endowed Professor of Malting and Brewing Sciences at the University of California, Davis between 1999 and 2018. And following his retirement from the university as Distinguished Professor Emeritus, he became Senior Quality Advisor to Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. I mean, come on, that's not a bad gig, is it? So before we crack open a foamy one this week, a few announcements and a word from our sponsor. I'm pleased to announce that Hot Forward has been shortlisted as a finalist in the Ciba Business Awards at this year's BRX in Liverpool on the 16th and 17th of March. Hot Forward is up for the Best Independent Craft Beer Promotion Award, though I'm up against Brew York, who are a fantastic brewery smashing out some phenomenal beers, and the wonderful Pellicle magazine, which is packed full of great articles on fermented beverages with a great team of beer writers, including people like Matthew Curtis, Stephanie Shuttleworth, Lily Waite, and they also have their own <coughs> rival podcast. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. We're good friends. It's all good. Uh, but they've also got a really good podcast, which is great, and you should go check that out. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm just stoked to be nominated this year. So the best of luck to Brew York and Pellicle. You guys can buy me some commiseration drinks if Hot Forward loses. If Hot Forward loses. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's all, it's all level. It's all good. It's all good. We're all friends. Anyway, <laughs> so that's coming up. I'll be around both days, though. I'll be judging on the Wednesday. So you might not see me as much then, but let me know if you're going to be around. It'd be great to say hello and have a beer with you. 
Also on Thursday from 3.15 to 4pm, I'll be running a seminar hosted by Sieber's Neil Walker called Brewery Marketing, How to Get Your Beer Ahead of the Crowd, where I'll be looking at how you can make the most of your marketing by crafting a compelling message and choosing the right mediums to communicate a message to your customer base. That's in the tap room. So hopefully I'll see you there to shed my many, many, many insights. Many they will be. Okay, I've got some fermenting thoughts coming up too, uh, but I might save those for the BRX week so I can pre-publish it and not worry too much about it because I'll evidently be at BRX that week. So that's coming up, thinking a lot about um, expectations and beer styles. So I'll put that together. You can listen out for that. So next week will be another full-length episode, which I recorded with Asvex Brewing, also happened to be based in Liverpool, incidentally, with all this talk of BRX. And one of the projects I'm working on I'll be collaborating with Charles Farham, the hop merchant, for a podcast all about using British hops to make a British hopped IPA using their new varieties. So we're going to go through the entire thing, start to finish from choosing the hops, rubbing them, talking about them, talking about how we can put a beer together and then possibly even recording the brew day and talking through the fermentation process and ending up with a beer tasting. So toyed with doing this on video, you know, give Craft Beer Channel a run for their money, or maybe not. Um, no, it'll probably just be audio. As I've got the perfect face for radio, what can I say? Um, but the beer, it will be in Emmanuel's beer. So if you can think up a pun in keeping with the biblically-based beers, then maybe the winner will receive a six-pack of them. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So send your tweets in to... Hot Forward Beers and Emmanuel's, that's E-M-M-A-N-U-A-L-E-S, not Emmanuel's, as a lot of people pronounce it, uh, Emmanuel's, with your suggestions and using the hashtag uh, BritHop or something. Yeah, use BritHop, that's cool. Um, not that I'd rip that off of Buxton Brewery or anything, or the 90s, whatever. And I'm sure one of you out there will come up with something that is just divinely inspired. And if you do, I'll send you a six-pack of the beer with your name on it. Literally. Well, maybe not. Yeah, maybe literally. I don't know. I'm not that far ahead yet. Okay. So thanks for tuning in this week as ever. I can't wait to share this episode with Charlie Bamford talking all about foam. But before we do, here's a bit of info about Hot Forward, what we do, and a few words from this week's sponsor. Cheers. Not only is Hot Forward a brewing industry dedicated podcast, but we also provide creative media solutions and consultancy for companies and people who are looking to get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hot Forward works with a range of diverse enterprises from across the world of beer to provide branding and marketing consultancy, brewing and business advice, and bespoke creative solutions to help you hot rocket your way to success. Check out hotforward.beer for more info or connect with us on social media at Hot Forward Beers. Finally, don't forget to thank our sponsors who make the show possible on a weekly basis. The Hot Four podcast this week is proudly sponsored by SSV Limited. From tanks to full brew houses, SSV Limited has got you covered. SSV Limited have established themselves as the go-to partner to help you grow your brewery. High quality tanks, parts, brewing kits, coupled with the knowledge and experience to ensure your project runs smoothly from beginning to completion, whether it's equipment supply, full turnkey, or anything in between. 
Their part shop stocks well over a thousand essential brewing parts to keep your brewery up and running, and many are available on next day delivery. Visit their website at ssvlimited.co.uk and don't forget to visit their stand at Seba BRX in Liverpool this March. You can find them on stand number one, so make sure you swing by, say hello and admire their shiny brew houses. For now, grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. My guest on the Hot 4 podcast this week is Professor Charlie Bamford. Welcome. Nice to be with you. You, you too. So you're, you're in California, is that right? Yeah, we're at Davis, which is just to the west of Sacramento, state capital. But right. uh, as, you, as you can detect, um, I am not originally from uh, Northern California. No. So why, why don't you tell our listeners where you're actually from? I'm from a village called Up Holland, which is um, on the road from Wigan to uh, Skelmersdale uh, in Lancashire. So, uh, yeah, I was born and raised there. And um, actually educated in Yorkshire. I, I was at Hull University for a BSc and a PhD. And then I was in uh, your neck of the woods. I was in Sheffield from 1976 to 78 as, um, as a postdoc in the Department of Microbiology. And then then I went into the brewing industry. Yeah. And then somehow you managed to escape to sunny California. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they somehow they wanted they wanted somebody who had got my relevant experience in industry and academia and research. And, and so here I am. Brill. Well, yeah. I, I, I think um, I first came across you through the Beersmith podcast, um, yeah. And, yeah. which is one of the first brewing podcast I listen to actually uh, which you've spoken on a few times before I believe um, but but for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with you and your work can you just give us a, a a brief overview of your experience working in beer and academia? Yeah I, I started off at a place called the Brewing Research Foundation which uh, these days is called Camden BRI and uh, so I joined them in in uh, the summer of 1978 and the big country house down uh, in Nutfield in uh, Surrey just to the east of uh, Red Hill. And uh, it it was set up to do fundamental research for the brewing industry. And it was automatic payment. Every barrel of beer was taxed, um, <laughs> a small amount of tax that went to pay for the BRF. And uh, so we're working on fundamental brewing issues and, and problems, you know, all the all the basics of, of brewing science and, and application. Uh, but also because some brewers were paying large sums of money, uh, you know, and they had no choice on the matter. Uh, they viewed it as a recruitment agency, and the biggest paymasters was the biggest brewery in the UK, which was Bass. So after five years at BRF, I, I went to Bass. They, they they recruited me. I became the research manager in Burton on Trent, and then after five years there, they they said you got to have the smooth edges knocked off. So I, I went off to become the, the quality assurance manager at the brewery in Runcorn. They changed the name to Preston Brook. Um, it was anarchy, but there we go. I, I learned a lot. And then I went back to uh, the Brewing Research Foundation. We, we, we went international, became BRF International. Um, to, to get, and no longer was payment automatic. You had to sing for your supper and make sure you kept people happy. But we recruited <laughs> members all over the world. And then after eight years, um, I, I went to UC Davis, University of California, Davis, to uh, to, to run the brewing program uh, there. And then uh, after 20 years, I retired. I'm still associated with university, still do a lot of short courses. But uh, these days, uh, I rejoice in the title of Senior Quality Advisor for Sierra Nevada. And uh, 
And so I, uh, I very much enjoy uh, interacting with Ken Grossman and his amazing uh, people at uh, the two most beautiful breweries in the world, one in Chico and one in Mills River, North Carolina. That's quite a job to hold, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah, somebody has to do it. it yes, might as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, today on the podcast, I want to talk about foam and carbonation in beer. So to kickstart our conversation, I'm, I'm curious, how and why did you get dubbed as the Pope of Foam? Yeah, I, actually, I had, a, I had a, a, a research scientist came over to work with me called Jean-Pierre Biawa. Um, and Jean-Pierre was originally from Cameroon. But he'd, he'd spend a time doing some um, studies in Berlin. And he said, you know, they call you in Berlin. I said, no, I have no idea. I said, they call you the Pope of Foam, um, which kind of, I like that idea. Um, but um, I've been working on, on foam ever since those very early days at, at BRF. Uh, although by training, I'm a biochemist and enzymologist. Um, um, when I started running one of the research teams at, at, at uh, Nutfield, one of the big challenges was uh, foam hmm. and how, t- and wh- wh- why does beer have a foam? How do you make sure it's stable and so on? So I, I started uh, d- digging into foam. I think the first paper we published was something like, that I published on foam was in the very early 80s. And we're working on it ever since. You know, when I studied at University of Hull, I thought I was going to cure cancer. Instead, I, I worry about how to put a head on beer. So... Uh, <laughs> It, it, yeah, I'm sure it makes some people happy, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, over here in America, all these people drinking beer straight out of the, the bottle or the can, it, it's heartbreaking, but, you know, anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've, I've got beer right here and it's it's that's just got really good head retention on it, um, you know, and it's just really satisfying just to look at it and think I'm near the bottom and it's still got really good head retention. Well, uh, we've done, done a lot of work over the years. And, and, for example, when I was at Bass, you know, we did a lot of trade trials, a lot of testing of beers in, in the marketplace. And and the beers that, that were always preferred, you know, the, the unifying thing about them was they had a good head on them. You know? <laughs> and, and I think the thing, the thing is that you, you can see a foam, um, and you, there's no doubt, is there or is there not a head on it? And so, you know, people are never quite sure about the flavor. So, you know, when I was a QA manager, nobody ever complained about flavor. They all always complained about foam, usually in Sheffield. Because, <laughs> what can you um, say? <laughs> because, because you can see it. And they used to say, it can't be any good, this beer. It's come across the Pennines. That's why it's got a bad foam. But uh <laughs> You know, and 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 ninety nine or ninety eight percent of the time, it, it's not to do with the brewery. Um, it's everything to do with the dispense and and the the glass uh, and, and what happens in the pub. Um, that that is usually what makes or breaks uh, a foam. But 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 really, people do um, drink with their eyes. Mm. I remember. I, I, I actually, this is this is also sad. I, I started a group called the European Brewery Convention Foam Group, and and a guy from Germany said, "What? Do you, why are you the chairman of this?" And I say, "Why?" He said, "Well, you know, there's no foam on the beer in England." I say, "Well, you obviously don't know anything about England. You you, you think you've gone to London, and that's it. And yeah, you, you might not get so much foam on some of the beers in London, but you go up to the north of England and you try and get away without having a decent head on the beer and a pint of liquid as well with a foam on top mm. of that um then then you'll realize that that england foam is just as important as it is in in, in anywhere else in the world 
it's interesting you say it because I know when I go to um, the pub with my friend Paddy, I'll I, I often find if I've got a pint and it's not got much of a head left on it, I'm swirling it like this. And what? he'll look at me and be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm trying to get the phone. He's like, why? Why? Why do you have to do it like all the time? I'm just, I, I, I yeah. don't know, you know. No, um, but it's, 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 it's what you expect. You know, you see any image of... of a beer on a on a film on a movie or on a on a on the TV, you know it's beer because it's got a head on it. <laughs> you know, otherwise it could just be cold tea, couldn't it? So yep. <laughs> you know, it's it's all about the presentation. And as I say, we, at Davis did a lot of studies showing people just pictures of of beer with and without foam on it, and and good foam and bad foam and pretty foam and ugly foam and lacing and all these things, and people. They they voted the beer with the good head on it. They voted it being better. Even those people who said, I, I don't even put it in a glass. I just drink it out of the bottle. You show them images of it. They, they say, oh, well, the one with the foam is better. Um, and, and, and you know, you try, you go somewhere like Holland, uh, uh, yeah, or Belgium or the Czech Republic. Hell, in, 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 some of the pores in the Czech Republic, oh, that's all you get. <laughs> yeah, you just fill the glass with foam. You know? <laughs> so, in many parts of the world, it's it, it, it's it's critical. It's important. Mm. It's an inherent feature of beer. Yeah, uh, and many people expect it, so you've got to make sure you deliver it. Yeah. So, what is beer foam composed of, and and how can brewers make sure when they're making the beers that every time they get fantastic head retention, like laced on the glass, like this one's got, and they, they look as beautiful as they taste. Um, I mean, perhaps maybe some things to consider in the brewing and packaging process. Right. Well, I mean, obviously if you don't have carbon dioxide in there, you don't have, you don't have a, a, a foam. Um, so basically fundamentally, the more carbon dioxide in the beer, the easier it is to make a foam. Even very low CO2 levels like cascales, you know, which are what one, you know, one, 1.2, 1.3 volumes or mm. 1.3 milliliters of CO2 per milliliter of beer. You're going to produce less foam with a given pour than you will with a hefeweizen, which is you know three or more volumes. But you know, if you put energy into the pour and vigor into the pour, you will produce those bubbles. But you've got to have some CO2 in there. Um, uh, then, you know, when you have a, a, you know, there's plenty of CO2 in champagne and there's plenty of CO2 in Coca-Cola, but, you know, those bubbles collapse because you're making all this surface and that's against surface tension, which tends to draw the liquid on itself. So you've got to have molecules in the beer which go into the bubble wall and, um, and stabilize it. And the main ones are proteins. So there's protein that comes from the grain um, and the bitter bitter molecules, the bitter substances that come from the hops. So when you pour your beer, what happens is those proteins and those bitter materials they go into the bubble wall and they stick together. And if you look at you look at your foam, when you first pour a foam, it's kind of wet and and, and sloppy. But if you look at the foam, it stiffens. It it, uh, it goes more solid. And that is because the, the proteins and the bitter acids are, are linking together, they're bridging and giving you this sort of solid matrix which holds the bubble wall together. And now when you slowly sip your beer, um, that solid foam is now lacing the side of the glass. It's sticking, clinging onto the side of the glass, giving you those beautiful patterns of, of lacing. 
Mm. You know, in some, sometimes when you have a pour in, in, in England, you know, the whole glass is just coated with foam. It's the most wonderful thing. Um, but, but it's got to be a clean glass. So this is what I was saying earlier on about, you know, the brewer can do all, all the brewer he or she can do to make sure the foam uh, is going to be going to be good. But you put it into a greasy glass or a dirty glass, then you, it's going to kill the foam. So what you've got to make sure is the glass is absolutely pristine, clean. Never wash glasses alongside any, any plates or anything like that, any food items. Just wash the glasses alone and make sure you rinse away the detergent and make sure you, you don't allow your fingers to get inside a glass or any grease from a cloth or anything like that. Um, and then when you pour the beer, you're going to have a great foam. And ideally, those glasses are, are those glasses that have got little etchings on the bottom. So they nucleate the bubbles. They allow the bubbles to rise from the bottom of the glass. And that's beading. It looks good. Uh, and it replenishes uh, the foam. And of course, when you dispense uh, the beer uh, into the glass, you've got to make sure it's done properly. So when I was a, the, the QA manager at Bass Preston Brew, used to go out into the into the trade. This was pre pre Margaret Thatcher when we owned all our own pubs and mm. you know the vertical integration. And we used to go in the pubs, and I'd go with the outside quality assurance people, and, and the guy called Barry, and he used to introduce me. This is. This is Dr. Bamforth. He's, he's forgotten more about bubbles than you'll ever know. Put your sparklers onto the taps. Because they used to unscrew them. Because <laughs> it made it easier to pour. Put your sparklers on. So the, we, we made them tamper-proof so they couldn't unscrew them. So they sawed them off. I mean, <laughs> you know, you know and, and every, to make a quicker pour, to make it easier, to, to have greater throughput. You know, probably pubs on the way to... Old Trafford or Anfield or something, mm. where, where, where you know they wanted the beer poured out quickly, and people probably under those circumstances didn't care too much about the appearance. They just wanted to get some liquid inside them. So, you know, that's just a, 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 a you know a snapshot of, of of the basics of it. But there's a huge number of variables from the choice of malts, the choice of hops, the the yeast quality of the yeast, the process itself, they've all got a huge influence on on how good that foam is going to be. Yeah. I mean, um, th- there's so much to unpack there, everything from the um, etching on the glass through to the ingredients. We'll come on to the ingredients in a second. I'd, I'd really like to discuss that. But um, first, something I just wanted to put up in mind when you were chatting was about, you were saying about um, bittering and what was the other thing? Um Proteins from the malt. Yeah. So I've noticed that, like, for example, the, the beer I'm holding up is just like a, a, a classic hoppy pale ale. It's nice and bitter and it's got a fantastic foam. But I've noticed a lot with hazy IPAs, which are really soft and have no bitterness, that actually you don't get that much foam. Is that just because of the bittering aspects of it because obviously there's a lot of protein in there through oats and things like what's the deal there basically well there, there, there are various possibilities one is yeah many of them the new england ipas do tend to have less bitterness but you know as long as you've got some bitterness there you, you you're usually going to have a half decent foam there there are other things that matter one is going to be the alcohol content and again it depends on how alcoholic they are Basically, all things being equal, the more alcohol, the worse the foam. Right. Alcohol is, is not good. But, you know, you've, you've also, 
the, the foam you're going to get is a balance between those things that promote uh, foam, like most of the proteins and the bitterness, balanced against the foam negatives. Alcohol is one of them, but also lipids, uh, fats and oils. And um, if you've got more um, foam negative material, which you might have in some of these beers with some, some of the um, lipid-like materials you're going to get from very high hop levels, that will counter the, the foam positives. So, um, you know, unless you do a... Um, uh, we, we've over the years proposed all sorts of tests you can do to, to, to detect, have you got a shortage of protein? Have you got too much of a negative material? Or have you got both of those things, not enough protein and foam negative material? Unless you do those tests with, uh, with your beer, you're never totally sure about what the problem is. And I have to say that uh, I haven't done those tests with some of these hazy uh, hazy IPAs and so on. But my money, my number one bet would be that uh, you, uh, you, you've got that little bit extra alcohol and you've got some negative materials coming from the hops. Yeah. Right. So just going back then to, you were saying about the various ingredients. Um, obviously, as I said earlier, we get a lot of brewers, professional brewers listening to this podcast. So just talk us through... Um, some of the the foam promoting, I love that phrase, promoting foam, um, foam promoting ingredients and and best practices a brewer can do to yeah. get a, a good head retention, even if the alcohol content is maybe higher. Um, right, you know. right. And like I say to people, you know, some people that, that I talk about alcohol being foam negative. And by the way, some of these crazy alcohol beers, you know, were you know, you pour, I, I wouldn't buy them for all sorts of reasons, but one of the main ones is when you pour them out, they ain't going to have a head on them because all that alcohol is going to kill kill it off. Um, but I say to people, you know, you can have a, a, a barley wine with a perfectly decent foam as long as you 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 realize you're going to have a lot of protein and bitterness in there. If you're making a malt liquor, you know, with a lot of adjunct in it, then you've got that much less protein. Mm. So so the main source of the protein is is the malt, uh, the pale malt. Um, but uh, one of the things that people brewers have realized for years is the proteins that come from wheat are better than the proteins that come from barley, molecule for molecule. So over the years, lots of brewers, have, even for a, a beer that is primarily based on um, malted barley, they put a little bit of wheat in there, wheat material in there as well as a source of protein. And those proteins really do give very stable foams. Um, there, there are certain other, you know, over the years, people have said, oh, well, you know, we get, you know, we, we advocate using crystal malts and caramelized malts and so on. They're, they're good for foam stability. Well, it, it's a two edged sword. We've done quite a bit of work on that in recent years. Um, they, they actually, the, the things like crystal malts, they actually contain a lot of foam negative material. And uh, this is what we call oxidized fatty acids. So they're, they're, they're fats, basically, that have become oxidized in the mm. process. And they're very foam negative. So what we found was that these things are foam negative. But, um, and therefore, how can anybody claim they're foam positive? They certainly don't contain anything in there that uh, promotes the foam. But uh, 
Vinny Chilerzo at Russian River, some of your listeners might have heard of him. Mm. Um, he, he read the work we'd done and he decided he was going to take some of this crystal malt out of his brews. And what he got was over foaming, excessive foaming taking place in the process. And what was happening was this, that the, the foam negative materials uh, present in these specialty malts, um, they were suppressing the foam in the, in the process. And it's a longstanding adage in the brewing industry that if you, if you suppress foaming, if you keep foaming down in the process, that means there's more foam positive material surviving into the finished beer. So as long as you get, and, and that's why people have said over the years, well, if you, if you use antifoams, that's good for foam stability as long as they're removed downstream, as long as they're sticking onto yeast, as long as they're maybe filtered out or something, then the finished foam is going to be better. So my argument for those people who say, well, crystal malts are good for foam, it's because they're working as antifoams in the process. But you've got to make sure you don't have any carryover of that material into the into the finished beer. Right. So when we looked at specialty malts, um, we also looked at the things like black malt and chocolate malt and roast barley. They're fantastic for foam. Uh, unfortunately, it's not you know it's not a solution for a beer like the you've got in front of you there, a pale color like beer. You know because mm. you know black malt yeah it's got color you know it's roasted <laughs> barley. But what we found is there, there are some amazing, um, very small molecules that, that are made when you roast grain. And these have got phenomenal uh, foaming performance. And I'm, I, I'm retired from doing research these days, but uh, I hope somebody will, will try to isolate these, separate them from the color. And if so, there'll be an amazing uh, material there to, uh, to promote foam stability. So, so the, the grist selection is very important. Now, even if you're, if you're only using a pale malt, you're not using any specialty malt. Let's say you've got a 100% brew with pale malt. Then again, the, the two things I would um, advocate for, in, in, uh, if you want to use that to best effect, to maximize foam coming through, uh, foam potential, is you mash at the highest temperature you can, um, as long as you're breaking the starch down and everything like that, and mm. avoid any low temperature start to a mash. And the second thing is, look at the little bit lower pH in the mash. Um, and, and so if you mash at 65 degrees centigrade, it's best to start off at that temperature than to start off at a low temperature. So if you start off at 45 or 50, that's not good for foam stability. And if you mash at 5.1 or 5.2, it's better than 5.5 pH. And, you know, I know people advocate, well, they say, oh, that's because uh, at the higher temperature and the lower pH, you're, you're inhibiting protein breakdown. I don't think it's that. I think it's you're inhibiting an enzyme which makes these oxidized fatty acids, these foam negative materials, um, which will increase in level if you if you mash at low temperatures and, and higher pHs. Um, the hops are important, but but some people uh, tout the use of these so-called uh, reduced 
reduced uh, bitter substances uh, uh, that, uh, particularly for, for stopping beer going light struck, or as we say in uh, the States, skunky, you know, uh, with light, light damage. Um, these materials, they, they also give very stable foams. And so some people are saying, well, even if you're, you're not trying to make your beer light resistant, uh, these are great for foam stability. Uh, I would caution everybody to be very careful because the foams don't look pretty. Uh, you get very uh, lumpy foam. They, they sometimes might even look like an iceberg floating on the top of the <laughs> beer. Um, I, I, years ago, I was I was at a, a famous brewery in uh, St. Louis, showing some pictures of foam, um, and the guy from uh, Anheuser Busch said, uh, "That's interesting work." I said, "Thank you." He said, "Why do you use Miller beer?" Uh, I said, I, I didn't say what beer I'd use. He said, no, you've come here to St. Louis, to the home of Anheuser Bush, and you've shown us pictures of Miller beer. And they could tell by the texture of the foam. Wow. Uh, <laughs> because you get a very different appearance with the with certain hop uh, products. So, you know, it, the foam is, you know, the foam stability is, is important, but you, it's also the appearance of that foam. The, the, you know, you can have attractive foams, and you can have ugly foams. And, uh, and and I'm sure there's a lot of, if there's anybody from the hot companies listening to me now saying, bam, for shut up. But, uh, <laughs> but I don't, I'm not a fan of those reduced products for, 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 from an appearance perspective. Mm. And I can carry on. Uh, the, the, the yeast, if you want to talk, talk about the yeast now or later on. I no, no, go for it. Go, go for the yeast. All right. So, so uh, obviously the yeast is, is responsible for making the carbon dioxide and the ethanol, uh, which, uh, Two, two, two very important materials um, when it comes to foaming. But yeast um, yeast is, is, has got uh, quite a significant impact on, on foam. And, and if you uh, – I'll cite the work of, of my closest friend in the brewing industry, uh, Graham Stewart. Graham was for many years the technical director at uh, Labatt, um, but then he went to become the professor at Harriet Watt University in, in Scotland, and then he retired back to his native Cardiff. Um, and nobody knows more about high gravity brewing than uh, than, than Graham. Um, and um, I, I, I expect your listeners know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where you you actually ferment at a at a wort concentration higher than the mm. target alcohol concentration, and then you adjust the alcohol downstream to the, the final ABV. And the argument is you, you maximize your throughput in your fermenters. It's, it's a more economical way of doing things. Well, what Graham used, uh, showed many times is that if you ferment at higher gravities, you get poorer foams. Uh, the, the foam is not as good. Um, and the main reason for this is that yeast gets stressed. So if you stress yeast uh, and yeast uh, is not happy, one of the things it does is it, it releases, it secretes an enzyme um, which breaks down the proteins and damages the proteins. And uh, the more you stress the yeast, the more that uh, enzyme is, is released. And that enzyme chews up the proteins and damages the foam. In, in fact, Whitbread, many years ago in the, in the day, you know, again, mentioned pre-Maggie, but uh, back in the days when there were six big, yep. big brewers in the UK, 
Whitbread, all the brewers had their own research teams and Whitbread had, had one. And one study they did was to compare pasteurized beer with beer that had been sterile filtered or, you know, put through a membrane to remove microorganisms. And what they showed was the foam stability, the quality of the foam over time, if you filtered the beer, was not as good as if you'd pasteurized it. If you pasteurized it, the foam stability did not decrease through the package life. And the reason was with pasteurization, heating, you're killing off the, the enzymes that chew up the protein. So anything that stresses the yeast or ages the yeast is not good for foam. So I'm, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm not a fan of using yeast too many times um, from generation to generation to generation. Now, obviously, you can you if, if you're fermenting in a cylindrical conical vessel, you can pick your you know you can ch choose what segment of that yeast from the cone you, you're going to take, and you can preferentially select younger yeast. But mm. you know, basically speaking, the more fermentations you go through, the greater is the proportion of senile yeast, and, and that is not good for foam. I, I, I was giving a talk in in. Uh, an Austal once, it's an Austal brewery. My, my wife's Cornish, so I was on her home territory and I was talking about foam at St. Austal. And some of the audience, when I said this about, he said, how many generations do you recommend? I said, no more than 10. And he said, well, the last time we checked, I think we were something like 5,736. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. But but fundamentally, the, the reality is that uh, you can't ignore yeast when it comes to uh, uh, to foam quality. Yeah. I'm interested, how, how does foam and carbonation affect the taste and aroma of a beer? Because obviously we've talked a lot about um, how it presents in the glass and everything, but what about the taste and aroma? Does foam play much of a, an impact on that? Yeah. Um, well, CO2 itself, of yeah, course, yeah. Uh, uh, it doesn't taste, but you do detect it by uh, the, the tri uh, trigeminal sense. So you're... Uh, the, the 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 receptors in your mouth and your head that detect pain, they detect carbon dioxide. So if you're, you know, everybody's eaten chilies and, and has, uh, you know, and had the bite from the capsaicin in a chili, the heat, that is detected by the trigeminal sense. And so is carbon dioxide. So you detect CO2 by this, by this pain mechanism, uh, you know, the, it, it, you get tingle, but you know, if you stick your tongue in a highly carbonated beverage and, and leave it there, it's going to start hurting. <laughs> and, and that is the reason. Now, of course, the other thing that CO2 does is sweep, uh, sweep molecules into your, uh, into your nose, basically. Um, and most of the aroma, most of the flavor of beer is um, determined through the nose, either directly by smelling the beer or by the going up the back of your throat and into the nose that way. So the, the CO2 is, is, is important from that perspective. Um, in terms of the foam, um, one thing we can, you can talk about is the texture of, of the foam. You know, you can have foams that are uh, luscious and rich, and those are the ones where you've got a lot of liquid held up and held into the, the foam. Um, so that now you've got this, as you drink through that foam, you've, you've got that lusciousness there. Um, 
Is it a big thing when it comes to texture? I'm not convinced it is. I think I think foam is much more about the appearance than it is about right. uh, the, the taste. Obviously, you do concentrate the bitter substances in the hop, in the foam. So the foam itself, all things being equal, should uh, have a perceptible bitterness to it. Um, but um, I, this, the main thing about carbonation is that basically the more carbonated a product, um, the more uh, tingle you're going to get. Now, the other gas that you need to consider when it, 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 in the context of foam, of course, is nitrogen. Um, and, of course, it was Guinness. It was Guinness that pioneered the use of nitrogen gas mm. to improve the stability of, of foam. And the, the way it works is, you know, one of the main things that causes um, foam to collapse is that carbon dioxide passes from bubble to bubble. Uh, it passes from small bubbles into big bubbles. And eventually the small bubble will disappear and the big bubble will get bigger. And eventually you've only got half as many bubbles and big bubbles don't look as nice as small bubbles. And foam is more stable with small bubbles. Um, and the whole thing falls apart. But nitrogen gas can't pass from one bubble to another. It's it just not soluble. So this is why nitrogen gives very stable uh, foams, um, which anybody who's ever been in Dublin and waited for a pint to, pint to Guinness knows just how long it, it can take to get a nice, uh, this beautiful foam, this mm. beautiful uh, small bubbles, very, very white appearance because of all the light scatter. And, um, and and a very stable foam. Um, so it, 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 you know, and Bass, I, I mean, I can talk about Bass because these days it's a hotel company. Um, but, 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 uh, but in Bass, we used to put um, a little bit of nitrogen into most of our keg beer, including Carling Black Label, but not too much because nitrogen does influence the flavor and it does influence the mouthfeel. You get a much smoother mouthfeel with nitrogen um, gas uh, present. And the other thing that nitrogen does is it, it sort of tempers the, the roasted character in, in something like Guinness. All that, you know, roasted barley mm. giving very strong, you know, coffee, mocha-like characters. Nitrogen sort of takes the edge off that. Indeed, I'm not sure if it is the case in, in the UK, but here in America, you can get cold poured coffee. And, and you know, they pour, you've got a coffee shop and you've got coffee uh, served cold, which I can never understand, but under, under nitrogen gas. And that sort of smooths the harshness of the coffee. Now, if you, if you don't have roasted character in a beer, um, the nitrogen, you, you know, you might say, I want it for the foam stability, but it, it will change the texture and the character of the product. Um, and I, I personally don't like it, but, you know, what the hell do I know? Some people do, you know, so it, it, horses for courses. But the other thing about nitrogen, and I don't think anybody's explained why, it, it, it suppresses hop aroma. So I don't know why anybody would put nitrogen gas anywhere near a really hoppy product because it will really uh, change the character of that hop. Um, now, if you build it, in, build it into the process, you say, I, I, I want to have my superb foam, um, but, um, but I, you know, I, I want some hop character, but I'm going to balance the two. Okay, go for it. But all things being equal, 
uh, nitrogen is is, is it, it's going to have a prof- that is going to have a much more profound effect on flavour than will the CO two itself, other yeah. than the tingle from the CO two. Yeah. So for for brewers out there, forced carbonating beers in tank, which happens a lot these days, can you talk us through the science of what's actually occurring when beer is being carbonated and what can go yeah. wrong? And for any brewers out there that have had issues with carbonating beer probably mostly over carbonating but you know maybe under carbonating as well like um what can they do to rectify some of those issues yeah obviously the carbon dioxide is is going to come from two um two places um one is uh, the fermentation um but secondly um subsequent carbonation so there's different ways of doing that you can you can as you say you can basically force carbonate under pressure uh, you can do it by by introducing through basically a sinter through uh, in line, um, right the way down to natural conditioning, where whereby you make sure you um, have residual, or ensure there's a certain level of residual sugar in the product, um, which you read off a chart exactly how much you need. You've got yeast in there, and then that yeast progressively over time uh, in the the uh, container final package will convert that uh, that uh, sugar into carbonation. Classic examples, of course, being um, cask ales, traditional cask ales in, in uh, the UK, um, Worthington White Shield, which was um, the beer that uh, we had in the laboratory at Bass when I was, uh, w- was there. And of course, uh, a goodly proportion of the beer produced by the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company is naturally carbonated, mm. whether in bottle or in can. And different people talk about, well, is you know the quality of that carbonation um, and, and are the bubbles different um, for natural carbonation as opposed to forced carbonation? Um, and is does it make a difference when it comes to the the, the nature of the, the the CO2, the bubbles, the foam, the taste? Um, and again, I'm just going to simply say I've not made that comparison. I haven't looked at that comparison. There's, there's possible reasons why it might be the case, um, but I'm not sure it's a, a something that, as a brewer, I would I would worry about too much. Um, I mentioned a couple of times I think that I was a QA manager of the brewery at uh, at Pass Preston Brook near near Runcorn. And that that brewery was very badly designed. Um, it um, it was horizontal, basically, in format rather than vertical. Mm. Um, brewers should take advantage as much as possible of um, uh, taking gravity into consideration. But that brewery, which was was uh, formally opened in 1974 and closed in 1992, and that's a long story for a short time. Um, it, it, it basically had the brew house and the fermentation cellar and pretty much everything at one end of the campus. And then there was a long pipeline which went down the hill um, and down into the bright beer corridor. And one of the criteria at Bass um, for quality was right first time, which was um, were you within specification first time in the bright beer tank for gases, carbon dioxide and oxygen particularly. And 80% of the time, um, we were out of specification. 
there's only I mean two out of every ten brews that had were within the mm. tolerant, tolerant uh, tolerable level for CO two and oxygen. We either lost CO two or picked up oxygen or both. So the solution was basically just clamp on a CO two supply to the bright beer tank, and basically purge in purge off the oxygen and boost the CO two with um, with with more carbon dioxide. Unless you get it right, then the, you you run the risk of foaming, and you produce foam. And of course, as I've said, if you produce foam, uh, the, the, if you produce foam at that point, there's less foam positive material in the finished beer. Mm. Not only that, the foam solidifies and, and you know crumbles, sticks on the side of the wall, slides down the wall, breaks up, and gives you particles in the beer. So I mean, it's a, a, a disaster. So whatever carbonation method you you use then it's a case of, of making sure you attend to, um, to that um, possibility and you, you, you have a, a, a top pressure such that you are going to be bringing in CO2 without risk of, of fobbing. One of the, um, tool, one of the, the techniques that was looked at when I was the director of research at BRF International was studied by a guy called Gary Freeman. And he looked at uh, so-called hydrophobic membranes. There is membrane technology um, uh, which uh, will allow gas control. So these are sort of basically big tubes with lots of fibers in them. And your, your liquid, in this case beer, flows through these fibers. And on the other, on the other side, on the outside, there is your, your, your gas. So as the liquid flows through um, these these tiny fibers in this these big cylinders, um, it's exposed to the gas on either side. And if the CO2 concentration is higher on the outside than on the inside, then according to Henry's law, which is that the, the, a gas will pass from a high concentration to a low concentration, the CO2 will go through the membrane and into the beer. And if you configure it uh, the correct way, uh, in terms of the the, the dimensions of the uh, the device, in terms of the flow rate, in terms of temperature, and so on, you can control it such that at the end, as the beer comes through, you've got CO two at the desired specification, and without without any risk of, of fobbing or or, or or breakout or anything like that. Equally. If, there's, if there is oxygen in the beer and there's no oxygen in the in the gas on the other side, then by Henry's law, which and gases the gases are uh, behave independently, so the oxygen will go out of the beer and into the the gas uh, onto the gas side. So you're de you're getting rid of the oxygen from the beer. And should you want to introduce nitrogen, you can introduce nitrogen this way by having nitrogen on the outside, and it will go into the beer as you go through. Not very soluble. So, you know, a beer might have, you know, six grams per liter of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. It might only have 50 milligrams per liter of nitrogen, but that's that's all you need to get a stable foam. Um, so, so the bottom line is um, gentle. Yep. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, just to round up, you mentioned a few times earlier about like glassware and foam and stuff. And I just wonder if you could share some thoughts on, uh, not just on glassware, but on dispense in general uh, and how 
maybe publicans and bar owners can, um, you know, some of the things they can be doing to help, you know, get the perfect pour. Because like you say, at the end of the day, if I go, I might have made a fantastic beer that, you know, when I pour it from my uni tank, it's got great foam, but like, you know, it goes to, it goes off to a bar and if they're not keeping their lines clean, for example, and then, you know, they pour the beer and it looks crap, then someone's going to see my keg badge and my beer and be all like, mm, that doesn't look good, does it? So like, what, what are some of the things that um, bar owners and publicans to do, can do to promote foam? Well, obviously they, they've got to make sure the dispense gases are, are, are correct. Um, and, 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 you know, the, you, it's either, see, well, okay, you can have simple gravity dispense and, and, uh, or indeed beer, beer engines for gas conditioned ales and those things. Um, but uh, if it's, say, a keg beer, then, of course, they've got to get the, the CO2 set up correctly. And if they're using mixed gas dispense, CO2 and nitrogen. So getting that uh, dispense, the driving force under control. Um, yeah, the, the, the sparkler on, on the tap is very important in terms of setting to, to get the appropriate pour. Um, but the glass, uh, it's, it's got to it's gotta be beer clean. It's got to be um, absolutely um, not got any uh, foam negative materials on it. If you put beer into a glass that is not clean, then what you're going to see on the sides of the glass, in the beer, look through the beer, you'll see big, ugly bubbles on the side of the glass. This is not foam. This is grease bubbles mm. that are indicating a greasy spot. And, and so you should be checking your, making sure your, your glass washing is not, not um, leaving these things behind. The way to check for a clean glass is to get the inside of the glass wet and sprinkle salt all over, and a salt should stick to every part of that uh, the glass if it's clean. So if you're in in uh, washing your glasses in a the machine, then you, it, it needs to be done properly. You need to make sure that you know whatever detergent is properly rinsed. If there are rinse aids in being involved, that they are not foam negative or if any residue. Um, the, the whole aspect of making sure that glass, those glasses are consistently clean. And as I say, um, if you use these glasses, one of the trade names I know is Headmaster, glasses with these nucleation sites um, on there as well. That's very, very, very um, exciting possibility um, for really excellent foam uh, presentation. Yeah. Just to pick upon something you said there about... Um carbonation levels um for a bar owner with particularly like I said with um with keg beer is um when a keg leaves a brewery i've i've never seen and i've never certainly done it um but i've i've never seen it say what the the volumes of co2 in that beer are so it's kind of like i i could have i mean not that i have one but i could have like a zaman nagel you know the shaky shaky and and be like oh i've got you know 2.6 volumes of co2 in this beer but you know that keg goes off to the bar owner they don't know that and i've never ever seen it on a keg before so what do bar owners um, and publicans do when they get a keg and like, is there any ways they can figure out that for themselves or the, or they literally just got to get their regulator and be like, no, it needs to go higher. It needs to go higher. No, too high. And, and mess with it that way. Yeah. I'm afraid so. And, and, you know, um, going back, that was, that was the beauty of what we had 
um, back in the day. Um, for a company like Bass, and I'm sure it was all the same for Allies and the Courages mm-hmm. and the Whitbreads and the Watmers. We had our outside quality control people who were continually, continually uh, trawling through um, the cellars, making sure that everything was set up correctly, whether it was the 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 the, the casks being laid properly, and uh, fining was being, uh, you know, the clarification was right, uh, and of course the carbonation. You know, I'm I'm a little bit out of it, but uh, you know, I, you know, the, the cask marks of this world and the, the people, the, the companies that are uh, available to sort of give guidance in terms of setup and so on. I I, I would hope, I would think, that there's resources out there uh, for people who are going to be able to advise people in terms of their um, what goes on in terms of their setups and to make sure they are set up correctly. Perhaps I'm naive there. I know the cask mark historically was set up you know, to do with cask condition beer, but uh, but surely there, there there must be resources there. But as I say, I've been in California for 22 years, so 23 years, so I'm yeah. a little bit out of that. Well, I mean, it's been great to have you on the show. Um, a, a blessing even uh, for a tap the type of foam on the show. Um, oh, there you go. Look, and you even gave us a blessing as well. Um, so if, if people want to read some of your works or hear any lectures on brewing or anything, like where can they find some resource material from you? Because I mean... Well, if, you, if, you, if you put Bamforth and brewing or something into the internet, you'll, you'll come to my webpage. And um, there's also, if you look at books, there's all sorts of books there, including one called, would you believe it? Foam. No way. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, but there's all sorts of other stuff. And some of it is... Uh, is uh, is is more sort of heavy duty science than than others, but the the one that's foam is part of a six part series on beer quality, basically troubleshooting guides. So mm. much of what I've talked about today, and, and ter- certainly in terms of interpreting why you might have a less than perfect foam performance, uh, that's there. And you, you even see the link to my uh, most recent book, which is a, a football book. But, uh, that's my other life. Yeah, there you go. Brilliant. Well, thanks for being on the show. All right, my pleasure. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. Cheers.